Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. to an old notebook so things are kind of out of order but that's not what matters the process is just about giving voice to insights and things that I see not necessarily putting them in logical order because putting them in logical order doesn't leave much room for the new creative expression that might come through in sharing that bit But for starters, last night I reduced the trazodone by one half. So I took one and a half trazodone and I took a Seroquel. I want to start taking a half Seroquel, but I don't have a pill cutter. So I might have to get one of those or really just try to cut it in half. And I'm still taking the Hardy Nutritionals daily. So where I left off in my old notebook was talking about the body is a perceptual apparatus and it's also a holographic net so it's sort of clinging on to the images it's recording and associating those images with the past so I wonder if we can be free from the holographic net and not record with it not try to find new images to associate with old images and I actually think that this is partially what builds up for people who have a tendency towards map consciousness. And when this recording isn't going on in map consciousness, the mind sort of touches reality instead of reality being touched by the images and thus not really meeting reality at all. So the mind moves when the images don't move and then the mind moves through us and animates us. And none of this is really true, it's just playing with ideas and thoughts and insights. I feel like the old holograms resonate with the new incoming information and only pick out bits that are similar to it. So it blocks the new information and only looks for similar information. And maybe the brain sees this as some type of efficiency because it's calculating whether or not what it's meeting will serve its purposes but his purposes have been programmed. So we're meeting life with the purposes of our programs. And so not really meeting it at all. The net of thought is holographic. And the me is this interference pattern that's interfering with all the new information coming towards us. It interferes with life, with actual life. And it seems like human beings are caught in this prison and this net of holographic light and sound. And I feel when this process stops, the matter of the brain then speaks life, life as it's met. And our choosing mechanism, our decision mechanism is part of this net. We're choosing with our net and grabbing those bits. 
of reality. And when we think, we send out holograms. And can we stop adding to this collective recording that we all share? And I made up a word, holographonic. So it's sort of this light and sound, and it's part of the image-making process through which we meet life. And it seems like the universe has created a creature that can harmonize with life with its gestures and words or destroy it. We're the only creature that can really choose to be in disharmony in a way. It's like we can pick an avocado and eat it or we can just cut down the tree. And in terms of first there was the word, it seems like that's choice and we can choose to use the word for destruction or harmonizing. And I had this thought that there are lots of other planets that supported life at some point. And the life eventually developed words and language. And then there was the choice to harmonize with the language or to use it for destruction. And if life chose to use it for destruction, it eventually would destroy the very life that created the language. Language evolved from life, from living things. And then the language, when used to destroy, eventually destroys life itself. So I had this thought that maybe there are a lot of planets that had life, but they destroyed it. And so it's no longer there. And I remember Alan Watts, he has a video on YouTube describing how he imagined that life could evolve to destroy itself, and then it would. And I can't remember if he said it in his video, or or if I thought of this, but I don't know, I can't remember if I did. But if we blew ourselves up, for example, DNA would go reeling through the universe, and it would kind of seed a planet somewhere with life. Eventually, life would be created somewhere else on the suitable planet that the DNA got to. And it might get to many planets, but only one might actually evolve life. So humanity, evolving as it does with language, eventually uses the language and the intellect to blow itself up. But then that seeds other planets with DNA and life. And maybe that's how life spreads throughout the universe, sort of like one planet, then the next planet, then the next. So there's always another planet. And in terms of questioning the prior assumption, we never question that which makes assumption happen, which is thought, which is language, which is our accumulated information. We accumulate information and then we can't see life. And life will tell us different information. And I think this whole thought part is key in terms of being able to transform somewhat because when the energy, the increased energy comes in, it amps up whatever's there. So if there's too many thoughts, it's going to have to deal with thoughts from the outside. So dealing with that plus personal thoughts or making those extra thoughts personal and personalizing them makes it more difficult.
And movement is part of communication, and that's along with the epigesturetics. But even the lizards here, they do push-ups to communicate with each other. So communication is not just words. And when we're in map consciousness, we're in connection with that total movement of communication. And in a way, when we start to move towards the so-called psychosis end of things, it's a movement and it's a communication of some kind. And I wonder if it's also about needing help or we need to help each other when we're in the map conscious state to stay in that state and not move out of it towards the structures of thought and society that would pathologize us. And meaning is a language, it's a living language. And life itself is the meaning of life. And I was thinking again, how important it is to not be attached to any perceptions or insights. And that's part of my self-dialogue is not just thinking of a couple good things, writing them in a book and then, and then clinging onto them like they're something special, when none of this is special. And one day I really hope to be able to face that real terrifying fear and just look at it and be with it. It's sort of like this internal death that happens, but somehow I haven't been able to move through it. And we, as people who go through map consciousness, we look like we have a disorder when the brain is deconditioning itself from the order of society's conditioning to the order of life itself. And I'm reading a book called On Our Own by Judy Chamberlain. And it was written in the 70s, and I can't believe it because it's so pertinent and relevant today. But she mentioned building up the confidence and self-esteem of all the people involved in the work. And we as people who go into map consciousness definitely have work to do to understand the states and also for the world, we all connected with having a sense that we need to do something to help the world. And Krishnamurti says, I am the world and the world is me. And I feel personally like I connected with that feeling state in the state of so-called mania. And one feels completely responsible for the whole world. But then one gets sort of crushed by that because it's hard to do on one's own. So I hope that if I share this one day, that other context, whether it's one thing or 10 things or no things or not even the things, but just the process itself helps to just build a little bit of confidence or understanding, I don't know what it is. And she's so forward thinking, she said, even a person who struggles to successfully maintain his or her own way of thinking, like I've been doing here, can be damaged by this form of psychological assault. So even if somebody goes through the system and they don't think, oh, I'm defective and diseased, it's still damaging to be told that and to go through the experiences of indoctrination into believing that. And I wrote down that I saw a little tiny fly and he actually had little wings on his head 
and I don't know if they actually flapped, but he was sitting there with two little wings on his head, and he flies, and he flies quite chaotically. But I've never seen a fly with like these extra wing appendages to help with their chaotic flight path. And he was cleaning his wings. It was really cute. And I started reading my writings from six years ago before I was diagnosed with anything. And it was interesting because a lot of it's the same that I talk about now. It's like I knew certain things and had certain visions before I was ever diagnosed with anything. And then the diagnosis was like, no, that stuff didn't mean anything. Yet six years later, I'm getting in touch with that and saying the same things. So it's from that same place that one gets in touch with. And what happens when I speak nature and infinity and not thought and limitation? And one thing I wrote six years ago is that that language is alive and always there. So I had a sense of this other language, of this other communication, of being in touch with something else that speaks through me. And I feel like MAP and so-called psychosis is an attempt to destroy the old language, even though sometimes it destroys the person. But if one can just deny that kind of language and move towards the other, and I don't mean just, that sounds like an oversimplification, but part of it is purging this old language from the nervous system. And when that happens, we see how scary and detrimental it is. And it's important to see it and observe it and not get attached to it or run from it, just really be with it which there's no real paradigm for supporting people through. What if more people spoke this language of nothingness? And it seems like all symptoms are seeing or hearing something beyond thought or hearing something that's kind of off to see the offness of it all. And I wrote this blurb here, and I'll just read it for the sake of hearing myself say it. Sound implies movement like hearing something hit the ground. It was an orange falling out of a tree. One might look to find out or just know from previous experience, thus not feel the need to look. That's what thought does. It's saying what we know from previous experience, thus we think we don't have to look. We think we don't have to pay attention. This is partly adaptive. We learn so we don't have to put our energy of attention on something, like a humming noise of a fan. We eventually don't hear it at all. Because our thoughts go on constantly, and we mistake that for reality, we have turned it, our attention down on reality. Just like if we have a rope and whip it in a circle, it appears as a circle but it is a line, a rope. Our circular thoughts make it seem like there is someone swinging the rope, thinking the thoughts. I think there could be a perception theory of supposed mental illness. Our perception is changing, kind of like how our eyesight can change over time and eventually we need glasses. Well, this change in perception is more radical and it actually increases our ability to perceive 
but we generally don't think about acquiring such abilities partway through life. So what have you seen, and what do you see? So I wonder, why do we no longer smell that the sound of thought is dangerous? The sounds of thought fade into the background, just like the smell that we no longer smell because it's determined not to be dangerous. Why does the computer brain make the sensitivity of the brain, the sensitivity to life, fade into the background? And I sit here in 98% nature and 2% human constructs. But why do most of us live in 98% human constructs? And then we wonder why we go crazy. And I remember in map consciousness feeling like I could steer the whole world with my gestures, my movements, my actions. And at some point this became scary because it was a huge responsibility and I felt like I no longer knew what I was doing. I think part of the trouble is in trying to do something when really we aren't the doer in that state at all. And I think that the sound of thought is partly the sluggishness. It's the energy drainer. In map consciousness, our brains work at the speed of light. And I wrote down that power over creates memes, words, and sounds for people to believe. Whereas power with relieves people of the believer and puts people in contact with the perceiver. And I was thinking about how science wants to predict stuff. And even our ego wants to predict stuff. It wants to predict what to do. And in map consciousness, sometimes we can predict and prophesize things and see the future because the mind is a scientific instrument in itself and it's access the quantum state but it makes the little predictions of science seem ridiculous in a way because the brain itself can see way beyond it so that kind of game is over just by this new capacity of the brain it's a different order of operation altogether and in David Bohm's book Wholeness and the Implicate Order he calls the new mode of language he is playing with the real mode, which is a flowing mode of language. And that resonates with me because I had a lot of language flowing out of me, and it's almost like in map consciousness, one gets in touch with a flowing mode of language, not as trying to create one, but just as one is in that state. There is language and new language and new perceptions flowing out of that person. So perhaps that kind of state naturally creates that flowing language versus trying to create a flowing language from a state of not being in the flow. And I feel like the way we use language now is Newtonian. And when science is discovering quantum physics, we need a language to match those discoveries to make that come into existence. 
because the discovery of it didn't create that. It was already there. But in order for us to see that, we need to speak in a way that makes it possible. And David Bohm says a few things that are cool in his book, Wholeness and the Implicate Order. He said, nature will respond in accordance with the theory with which it is approached. And I feel like human nature will respond in accordance with the theory with which it's approached. So if somebody's approached by somebody who's just thinking that they're going to put a mental illness label on somebody, then human nature will respond accordingly. So the way a vulnerable person is approached is very important. And can we approach nature as beauty with beauty? And I feel like the brain is shifting towards beauty. And the mind is unlimited, but the body is limited. And I'm wondering if this is part of the reason why I need to keep a lid on consciousness. And David Bohm said, theories as ways of looking, modes of perception, guides to perception. They're not separate substances. Even with self-dialogue, I'm sharing so many things that overlap, contradict, add, subtract, yet each one is a way of looking. And I wrote, I seem to be a way of looking that constantly changes, that creates a new insight. And can the brain guide perception to see beauty? Or can perception create beauty in the brain? And these are all different ways of looking at one reality. And that's part of the point of self-dialogue is just to look at reality in different ways. Look at experience in different ways, not in terms of right, wrong, good, bad, better, worse. And I wrote, nature is made of a substance called beauty, but we're so busy looking for truth that we can't see it. And we've turned beauty into pleasure. So we're looking for pleasure instead of looking at beauty in the moment. And what happens when the mind moves faster than the speed of light? Then consciousness leaves the body, it travels. And Bohm also said, the undivided wholeness in flowing movement. To me, that sounds somewhat like map consciousness. Not just the words, but the actual felt sense of the truth of that. And he talks about the word formative. And I feel like human beings are formative and we can form language and be formative in our communication. And human consciousness has a relative stability and autonomy, which is the body. And he defines formative cause as an ordered and structured inner movement that is essential to what things are. And I feel like map consciousness in a way is a formative cause. It causes new language, it causes insight, it causes reaching out, it causes responsibility, action, new gestures. And this energy as it's doing that is changing the DNA, it's changing the muscles, it's changing everything. And it's forming new meaning. It's getting the body to see new meaning. And not cling to those meanings, but see meaning moment to moment. New meaning moment to moment. I just had a fortuitous event. Somebody wants to lend me their car for a week. 
and I haven't driven in six weeks. One thing though is being on extra Seroquel, that's not great. So maybe tonight I will cut it down to half a Seroquel and one and a half Trazodone. But now I feel like I need to do some planning of what I can do for the next week with a vehicle. So hopefully I can do some self-dialogue but also some embodied self-dialogue and embodied mania. So how would I live for a week in California with a car? Stay tuned. So that changes the landscape of things a little bit as I will be able to further map the landscape around here and it'll be fun to drive because I do like driving and I haven't in a while. And another thing too is that a bit of my story is going to be in the Emerging Proud book that is coming out in about six weeks. And it's safe to talk about it because it's not out yet, but it will be by the time I release this. And Katie asked for a two-line blurb to the readers for hope and inspiration. And I wrote down, our brains are resilient, neuroplastic, and quantum with infinite capacity to learn, unfold, and create. We've seen and touched possibilities yet to be made manifest. So hold these visions in your heart so that the minds of the many might be touched and see the possible world too. So I have a few notes on my computer and I'm not planning to sit inside often to be able to read off my computer and talk about it. So I'll get right to it. I made up a word. I was thinking about how dialogue in a way is kind of like improv, but just a conversational improv in a way, whereas improv is more embodied. But I created the word diimprovologue, which is a combination of dialogue and improv. And I wonder if that can be brought into embodied mania. So it's not just an improv and just playful, but there's some form of communion and dialogue happening at the same time. I feel it's possible to see people's possible selves. When I was able to look at people and see them light up and become their flamboyant animated version of themselves, their die-improvologue version of themselves, we are all there underneath the encasing of thought and societal structures. In a way, this other language comes out of our eyes and heart. We can actually see that which we want to say from a new perception. And it seems life energy is turned into thought, which has no basis in actuality. It's from the past. And perhaps because it has no basis, in reality, it can't really touch reality, so it has to turn back in on itself. And it's like this cycle keeps going because something is trying to meet reality, but nothing ever does if it's from thought. Words can't meet life, so they go back in circles. 
and life energy created by life goes out to infinity and it actually changes the pattern of the whole ever so slightly. Whereas thought is repetitious and doesn't change the whole. And it seems like thought as the me is false integration. The me can't integrate into the whole because it has no relationship to the whole. So instead of integration, we get repetition. The brain is being used as a repetition device instead of actually integrating and creating. Can we approach life with beauty? Flow is a flow of beauty. Can our gestures and actions move with the algorithm of beauty? Can each step we take be artful? And if we approach with beauty, the thing doesn't matter. The thing we approach, what matters is that we approach with beauty and in that we have some relationship to it. And it seems like map consciousness is an exercise in beauty, exercising us in the field of beauty and exercising our beauty muscle gestures and our beauty neurology. I wonder if there's genes for this beauty. Can we reach out as beauty? So I don't like reading stuff, but when I write longer blurbs, kind of have to read it. So I think this is in response to what Dr. Daniel Siegel said at the end of his neuroscience talk on the neuroscience summit. He said something like, we are nature. And I wrote, to say we are nature intellectually without a felt sense of it and sensitivity to it is meaningless. And if we are, to integrate nature, we must understand our relationship to it. If we have no direct understanding, it is not integrated in our brain. It's just a word, a concept, an abstraction. When the mind uses the brain to start integrating nature, the immensity can short circuit the brain's circuitry, and this is exactly what is needed to short-circuit the me. When we get a glimpse of our relationship to the immensity, it starts a never-ending unfolding of understanding, of meaning, of our relationship to nature and as it. This is eternity. So, it's scary to fall out of eternity and be engulfed back into the limitations of society. This imposed limitation is a pressure on the brain. It's difficult not to go crazy. But as the understanding deepens, the immensity crowds out the me circuits in the brain. We just need enough me to take care of the body. The brain space and fluidity opens up. So this deepening understanding takes over the brain as perception. Now you see as the mind. Interesting, I'm talking to myself. So now the brain is a relational organ, playing the music of relationship. As that, we can speak as the relationship to nature and all of reality. Then we don't need science as science is due to the separating ourselves from nature. 
with the way we use language, meeting nature and relationship with our preconceived notions of language structures, which divide us up from being in direct contact. The sound is the barrier, and the sound barrier we project prevents contact. Contact and relationship with nature allows us to speak as that relationship, as the moment. And I wonder about the math of this. Not that I know much about math, but I'm seeing few variables that can go together to create something, and I don't really know what that is yet, but see if something happens. Again, as a crazy person, I can pretend that my brain might be able to come up with some math stuff. It's possible. Or sea-willing possibility. I want to be defective in reference to this defective society. The mind installed a new value system, which has nothing to do with education and society. And I feel like beauty becomes the fuel. Beauty is the fuel. See willing possibility beauty fuel. And I was reading David Bohm's book, Wholeness in the Implicate Order. And he talks about a word, vidate. I think it's vidate. And I'll talk about it again later if I don't get this correct. But he was saying that it means to see and to understand at the same time, to perceive and to understand, not just to see something, but to really understand and have a felt sense of, of that thing, like to understand and to see. And to have an insight is probably similar. So to have an insight is to understand something in a moment like, aha, eureka, and so in the same way one could ask, see inciting possibility? Does one see into the possibility of that insight? Not just receiving it in terms of, no, that doesn't agree with my belief systems and my opinions that I've been told and sold and programmed to think about. And the cool thing about see as well as see in physics is the speed of light. So, in the word see, as in S-E-E, -E, is also see for light, and one needs to really see the light without the interference of previous sound structures in order to have an insight. And so if I say see inciting possibility, one might say, no see in sounding impossibility. So that is admitting that one's internal sounds are getting in the way of seeing the insight that one is declaring as an insight is not coming from past knowledge, but is actually something that is seen in the moment. And all that word stuff with the see inciting bit All the bit extra I just made up now and I'm only saying that to say that new insights can come up even though I have a bit of a list here of things that I wanted to talk about and that's why I like writing down the small point form things and not these big long things is because 
I can talk about things. And if I write down a big thing, then I have to just read it and I don't like that. When I'm reading it, I'm sort of just reading it to read it and usually not much else comes up into consciousness. And so yeah, beauty is the fuel. Beauty is the fuel. And I do feel in a way that my job is to harvest these insights, insights from beauty, to give voice to the beauty that is all around. It's part of giving voice to the voiceless, which requires mirror neurons and empathy and silence. It seems like my brain can harvest insights and perceptions because it has a direct relationship with the mind, with reality. And this is not anything special. It's how we're designed to be. We're not designed to be programmed robots because this mind is something we all share. We use the brain in service of personal pleasure, but when we strip away all the personal stuff, we have the same brain and mind, and that's what Krishnamurti talks about, is the human brain. If we were all, all of a sudden blank slates, we would just be the same human brain with the same kind of capabilities. And I was actually thinking today when I was thinking about how I've been, you know, struggling lately or something, and had to take the extra medication, but if I put it in the context of I am the world and the world is me, well, the world is struggling. So if I say I'm struggling, it makes it seem like my personal struggles, but the world is struggling. So even if it seems like I'm in a scenario where I shouldn't be struggling, then just to put it in a broader context, because I feel like I've connected with that oneness where it's all one and I felt so amazing and ecstatic well one can feel anything in between when one is connected to the oneness it's not all lollipops and cotton candy so I'm going to try that a little bit when I'm struggling and kind of have the sense that the world is struggling and I'm picking up on it and I haven't been struggling I just feel kind of drugged a little bit because I've been taking extra medication and like I said the main goal right now is to get to emotional CPR so how do we translate this beauty by giving voice to it by talking about it by talking as it by talking with it by looking at it by being with it by smelling it by touching it by tasting it by being in complete wonder of it by understanding it wholly, partly. And I wrote down that when my heart races like that when I'm falling asleep, it's like some sounds and thoughts are coming in to process. And it's scary because usually I'm not really connected up with that stuff, but I feel like sometimes some of it tries to filter through me like, like a drain almost. And map consciousness is vision correction towards quantum vision and having a quantum brain. The quantum world already exists. Scientists are just touching on it, but it actually exists as a state of existence, as a state of the brain. Why don't we have access to that brain state? It's partially because the people who go into that brain state 
or pathologized, and I created another word. Instead of agreeing, which is sort of what you said agrees with my opinions and my past programs, a seeing is seeing something that someone's saying, something new, and meeting that instead of judging and, and, and making opinions about it as somebody is talking. To a see, one has to be open and say, I don't know, and be willing to find out. And I think nature has some hints in it. For example, when there's a loud thunder, we can't hear ourselves think it's too loud. And also, it might scare us into not thinking for that moment. And in that moment that a person isn't thinking, the moment before that, there's often lightning, which is electrons and energy. So it's like nature sends all this energy down to the Earth's surface and then has a loud sound that quiets the human mind for a moment. And even seeing the lightning can quiet the mind for a moment. And all the thinking energy and sound energy of people, if you were to add it all up and, and play that sound over a period of time, it would probably sound like a really, really loud thunder. If you took everybody's thoughts, which is 50,000 thoughts a day, all of that sound together, one person times two times one times a million times a billion, it would be so loud. So in a way, the collective thinking of the moment is being erased with the thunder. And also we have to pay attention to nature. And we have to change our actions because of nature. When we could be changing our actions because of nature, as in going towards the beauty of it. And another thing too that I do for sure is rely on the gestures of others to remind me to do things. So I do things more visually. So if somebody drinks water, I might drink water too because I'm not thinking, oh, I should drink water. But if I see someone else do it, I can mirror that. So I remember making up a word for that when I was in the state before I was even diagnosed. I called it a C-minder because we talk about reminding people of something, but somebody sometimes can do something that makes us reminded to do something, but it's really a C-minder instead of someone saying, don't forget to do this. And the importance of that is just acknowledging that we learn from others. We Even somebody giving somebody a smile can be a C-minder to remind us to actually smile at people. And so that's how the gestures spread. They spread by mirror neurons and C-minders. And there's probably an epigenetic component to that too. And we could also say, I mirror you to say, I am copying you and I'm copying something good that you're doing or that I need to do too as a human being. It's a common thing. So it's part of the trust of the world that hints out there will remind us to do the things we need to do and one day I'm hoping to maybe go completely calendarless and just wander. Right now I have reminders in my calendar and stuff because otherwise I forget to do stuff. So I think I told the story about how when I was in the hospital that bad time 
I've seen this pattern of light for probably 15 years and I've always kind of wondered about it, but I could see the pattern of light on the grass and each time it lit up, there was an ant there. Like the ant came out of the light, but it made me realize that that light is the movement of life. It's sort of like the flower of life, possibly. And that is the algorithm of beauty. I saw more of that yesterday. It was really windy. And I also see this sort of fluorescent green and purple everywhere. And it's really hard to explain, but it's this weird pattern and I don't see it all the time. But I can see it more in the dark. And it was dark outside, but I could still see the trees moving. And the way the lighting was, the trees as they swayed in the wind, they disappeared into darkness and then they came out of this darkness and it was just so apparent to me that it's this pattern of emptiness that really holds the material and it's impossible to explain but it was just so fascinating to watch it seriously disappear and, and rematerialize and, and it was actually supported by all these strings of purple and green light. I see the purple light more when it's dark and the green light more when it's white. And I've seen this all for like 14 years, which actually makes me feel like this whole process of the change of perception has been going on for a lot longer than even this whole mental illness diagnosis thing. So yeah, and there's this other thing that I see. These are all like bits of the biology of perception behind perception that we usually can't see. But for some reason I had this thing happen where all of a sudden I could see it and it was before that chronic fatigue thing that I had. And I wrote down that thought is a type of dizziness of not looking at the now and giving voice to it. And language is not required most of the time. Maybe language was originally from beauty. Originally it arose from beauty. And then somehow we managed to turn it ugly. So I might make another video. I'm not sure. Tomorrow morning I will plan some things to do with this car. So maybe I will have some other scenery besides the corner of my little room. I'm out looking for an eagle or a hawk feather. It was really windy last night, so I just had a feeling that I might find one. Like one would just magically blow somewhere. Did find bear poop. This is baby bear. And this is mama bear. And I found something else of interest. I don't know where it is, but I didn't find a feather. But I'm wondering if I will at some point. But I just wanted to make a quick video because 
this is definitely something a man could do is just be out for a walk and then divert to where one feels there might be an eagle feather or a hawk feather. I don't see that other thing. Oh, there it is, I think. This looks like some kind of shoulder blade, some kind of animal. The thing that's cool about relaxed perception is that if it's in the field of vision and one isn't looking for that needle in the haystack, the peripheral vision will pick it up. So one doesn't really have to try to look for anything. So we'll see how long it takes my brain to find it without trying to find it. Because I may not go out again looking for it purposefully. It seems like it's sort of like setting, I don't want to say an intention, but maybe a, a possibility. Intention sounds very willful, whereas possibility invites the participation of the whole universe. It's April Fool's Day, and last night I was able to reduce the Seroquel by half. And I tried to do that several days ago, and it didn't work. I had to take the other half. But this time, I fell asleep with half a Seroquel, one and a half Trazodone, and the usual lithium. I'm still doing the hearty nutritionals, and I'm feeling pretty good. Still feeling a little slow and sluggish. But today I actually got a lot done. Emails and things that I haven't really kept up on. So I felt very productive. And tomorrow I will have access to a vehicle. So I'm actually going to have mobility and be able to go around. I want to go to the hot springs and I really don't know what else. And I really don't like the bugs that come alive when I have my light on, so I'm going to keep this short. And I realized that I've taken this much notes, most of which I haven't talked about with myself yet. And that's a lot of pile-up. But my focus is going out and about staying well and getting to ECPR, and then after that, maybe focusing on eating a little bit healthier because I'm just eating a lot of carbs and not really putting much effort into my health. 
and I would talk to myself more right now, but I really don't want all those bugs to come out. They come out, I don't know where they live, but they just appear out of nowhere at nighttime when the light is on. And they might be those cute ones with the wings on their head, but I still don't want them all over the place. Good night. I'm here at the beach as a free bipolar person. Possibility of possibility. And not just believe, but be. Be. Let beauty entrain you. Let beauty animate you. Is this a beautiful universe? Talk to you later. So I haven't really been doing much self-dialogue lately. Partly because I've been attempting to catch up on other things. But partly I think it's because I'm still on a little bit of Seroquel. And I remember from last time how even when I was on one half, I think I did a video at the park where I was saying, I have no idea what to even say. And then that night I didn't take any, and then the next day I felt very talkative again. So I'm still taking half of a Seroquel, which I have for the last three days. And I'll continue to take half for a few more days just to make sure that it doesn't come up again because of how I'm in California and also how I want to get to ECPR. So I'd rather have a clear head at ECPR, but leading up to that, if I can just get myself to sleep and all that stuff, then that's good. And when I go off the Seroquel, if I finish coming off of it, then that means that I was able to take it quick enough to stop it from happening. And there was only a two month space between the last one and this one. So hopefully it doesn't happen every two months. And there's a chance I could run out of trazodone because I'm taking more than I usually do. So there's a lot of different factors that would lead me to go home early. but. It's looking like I'll get to ECPR and hopefully I'll get past mid-May and hopefully I'll get to 
the end of July. Hopefully with this hearty nutritionals, I'll be able to go off the trazodone because I have gone for long periods of time not being on trazodone at all. And today I was feeling kind of tired and bleh, I'm not sure if I'm starting to experience that over-medication effect that the hearty nutritionals can do. And tomorrow will actually be the one year since I was hospitalized when it wasn't good. That was a year ago tomorrow. And then I was in there for 19 days and then a step down for two weeks, so 33 days. So, starting tomorrow, this time last year, I was in the scariest situation ever. And it's awesome that a year later, I'm in California, living my dream, stumbling a little bit, but still doing it and having a good time. The most difficult thing really is having a routine of feeding myself because it's so beautiful that taking care of oneself is an afterthought. I kind of miss straightening my hair and maybe that's it. And I'm kind of skipping all over the place in my notebook, trying to go back to where I left off somewhat and just talk about some of this stuff. Could be good to still talk about it even when I'm a little bit drugged. To even just show the difference between drugged self-dialogue and not drugged. So here it goes. I've been thinking about language a lot, but not really because I'm drugged out, so I haven't been thinking about much, but it seems like I was thinking about language and writing stuff down at some point. And I feel like our brains are cultured and raised on thought in that we hear people when we're developing speak about the me and the past and the future. So we learn those language structures and we're, we're cultured in that. We're cultured in the language of me by a bunch of me speaking about the me. And this is structured in the language with subject, object, verb. And I wonder if we can create a present moment language and be cultured in that, where we don't meet each other with our past, but we meet each other with what is present. And not just what's happening inside, as in that's what's present, but what is actually there in the moment. 
perception of the actual. And in that way, we're not divided because we're meeting with what we all share, which is everything around us except for our physical bodies. And I wonder if the brain wants to be present or not because it seems like it's always running away with thought, wanting to be somewhere else and all that kind of stuff. But maybe it does that because we're not speaking as the present. So the me always wants to be somewhere else. But the me isn't the brain, it's just this construct over the brain. Perhaps the brain actually wants to be present, but the me can't be. Because the me is sort of this foreign entity in the brain that warps it away from just seeing and being and speaking as the present moment. And I wonder if the brain is trying to create a culture of presence and not just culture as in society, but actually presence is what is the true culture of the brain for the brain to grow. It needs to see and be in the present to actually grow and change neuroplastically, otherwise it's not really changing in quality at all. So something else grows when we're present. The brain wants to be whole, but it's the me that divides it up. And I think the language we speak inside is dopamine. Dopamine. And I think we speak dopamine English. It's English that gets us a hit of dopamine. The way we use our words externally, the way we use our words internally, we use that language to get dopamine and it's tied into the dopamine reflex. So it's English that produces dopamine. And I wonder if there's English that produces oxytocin. And really, to share and feel connected, one, in a way, needs to be present. So part of that could be oxytocin, and it could be a reason why someone in map consciousness has a lot of oxytocin traits. And I think the brain is trying to actually create a state even beyond oxytocin, which is beauty. And I think I've seen that dimension somewhat. And I read this study related to that, and I can't really remember what it is, but it made me think something about that. But anyway, I'll get back to that some other time. And I was thinking about how some people do stream of consciousness writing where they just write and write and write and write and write and don't think. And in a way, can we have stream of consciousness seeing where we just see and see and see without thinking. And when we see in that way, it produces sound, different sound other than thinking. And that sound might actually be something other than dopamine English. So perception 
creates a different way of using English. Not in service of the me, in service of the moment. And can we look as the moment, which is not a seeking state? When we're looking as the me, then we're seeking. We're seeking, we're looking for something when we're looking as the me. But when we look as the moment, we are that which we were looking for, so we just look. And I was thinking about cameras and how cameras capture and translate beauty. And if there was an image already on the lens of the camera, it would actually interfere with it, taking a beautiful picture. And when we project images and sounds as our thoughts, it's in the way of our lens. And another part of the camera analogy is that the camera doesn't talk about itself, it just captures and translates beauty. And those pictures are worth a thousand words. So when we can see with clear perception and take a full video moment to moment of the totality, we can choose with each frame a thousand different words to say about it. So can we create a language of the moment culture instead of a language of thought and the me and the past? It's kind of like improv in a way because in improv you can't really just talk about the me. You have to really play on the moment. One can only play in the moment. One can't play yesterday. So, And it's not really a fun game to always be talking about past stories and problems and things. So part of this language of the moment would definitely be play. I think mania is just a language of the moment. We're definitely very embodied in the moment through a lot of it. So where the words are coming from are from a different place, different dimension in a way. And we speak different from that other dimension and when we first get in contact with that in map consciousness, we can sound rather silly because we say everything unfiltered. And we don't question how we use thought inside our head. It's always, think, better thoughts, more powerful thoughts, affirmations. We don't question thinking in our head at all. So there's language inside our head and it's preformed going around in circles, and this pre-forming is part of the programming. We've been programmed to pre-form our words before we say them, but then they're always coming from that place in the past, and so we perform according to our conditioning. There's an undefined narrator and speaker, and I feel like all emotions are of the past if we recognize them as fear, when we have the fearful emotion, there'll be something from the past giving us a reason to be afraid. And I feel like emotions have a holographic quality in that the emotional molecule actually stores the information of what it is that we're emoting about. So it's not just fear, but 
the reason that we should feel fear. The little story, the image, the past event. And I feel like this is kind of how emotions put the brake on map consciousness and bring one back down. Because when one is in the mania side of things, it's very rich and ecstatic and fluxing and flowing. And then all of a sudden, an emotion comes in. And it's almost like a, a brake pedal because before it was like this flow of different richness that is hard to define. And then as soon as it's like fear from the past coming in, it almost grabs that energy of mania and pulls it down. So I feel like this could be the brake system from a person being in map consciousness for too long. So they're not able to maintain that state and turn it into a trait or a stage. And something short circuits and the emotions coming in like that is part of it. So in so-called psychosis, there's a lot of fear. And if somebody was in a high state and goes into fear, they're going to be in a low state quite quickly. So they're almost like anchors, like you've gone too far into that state or been too long into that state and it's sort of burnt out energetically. And there could be things that we do in that state that lead us to also burn that out. And the emotion and the story when it comes in, like the fear or, the, or whatever it is, it's the me that tries to tether us back to the limited self. Again, putting the brakes on. It all of a sudden reminds us who we were when in mania we're sort of something totally different and changing all the time. We're really with the moment and then the emotion comes in and sort of puts us not in just the moment, but in the whole context of our stored memories over time that in mania we forget about. And when we forget about them, we have all this energy. And then when they come back in, it pulls us down. And I'm not saying this is how it is or how it's bad for one and good for the other. I'm just saying it's interesting to think about. And I think emotions keep us separate from the world or help to keep us separate because it reinforces the me, which is a separative movement. And if we don't have that blocking us, we're sensitive and empathetic and using our mirror neuron system, not our emotional system. Our emotional system is chemical and the chemicals come in and produce holograms as well. Whereas if we are just with our mirror neuron system, it's based on light, the light of perception and sound as well, but actually receiving the whole impression of sound and light on our mirror and being able to make the calculation of responding adequately without thinking about it. It's a different calculation. You almost watch yourself act. Sort of like an emergency situation when you see something and you just act. 
you see what needs to be done right away. You just act. It's kind of like that. So the me and the emotions block the mirror neurons because the emotions are chemicals and holograms, whereas the quantum mirror is just light of perception and sound coming in, not inner sound blocking the sound coming in. And so it receives the whole quantum impression. And they're saying the universe is quantum. Well, the fabric is quantum and we move as that fabric and with that fabric and change that fabric because we are the possibility makers. And I was thinking that the quantum is a psychoactive substance and so is perception. When we see clearly, it changes our brain, it changes our brain chemistry. Just like in mania, our perception is so clear and we're so sensitive and it's psychoactive. We're not taking anything, but it's actually psychoactive. It's acting on our brains to perceive so clearly and act action and epigesturetics is psychoactive and it rewrites the DNA. So it's sort of genoactive as well. Seeing new renews the brain. And I think we who go into map consciousness, being valued and understood for our unique contribution that we're still waiting to be able to make, would be psychoactive. For us and for the people that might listen, it would heal the way we're looked at and the way a lot of people look at themselves. It would heal the way we look together and the way we speak together. And it would heal a lot of things because people who go into map consciousness do come back with a lot of meaning and perspective, more so than they might have ever realized because they've never been invited to think about it or consider it or it's dormant or atrophied because of lack of use. Like one has to use one's gifts. When one gets acquainted with those gifts and we don't use them, then they kind of shrivel up. But I feel like self-dialogue and context and meaning-making and, and talking with each other might provide the hydration, the nutrition, the resonance, the energy to, to reawaken these gifts that we have. The light that we have to meet coming out of other people's eyes depletes us. And I think we need a quantum language. We need a lot of different ways to use language than just past, present, future, me, you, I, we, they. There's so many more ways to to think about language, whether it's speaking as the present moment, speaking as perception, speaking as quantum, speaking as possibilities, or even a language for when two people realize that they can think together on things, that they're actually not two separate minds and brains. And I think the way that we use words actually creates mental illnesses with the labeling, of course, but even just the way we use language throughout our lives creates separation and loneliness and division and competition and coercion and, and every form of thing that's against the human nervous system. 
It's a culture of words. As in the nutrition of the words is, is off. It's weakening us. It weakens our nervous system and we're all repeating all of this and then we're not animating ourselves as our most beautiful selves because we don't have that language of beauty as the nutrition running through our nervous systems and, and in the thought sphere and soundscapes. And I feel like the me language, the current way language is used, limits neuroplasticity for sure. And it's reverberating through our nervous system and keeping us limited and we're not animated by the universe and I think this is the major thing. The energy isn't going through our nerves properly. So one of the things would be to use language differently. And if we think we have a mental illness then we stop thinking. We stop wondering. And we were born to wonder. And I wonder if we can go beyond personal separative emotions to empathy and from molecules of emotion to the quantum mirror an impersonal screen that calculates the light and sound so it's a light of perception state not a material state so the light and sound hits the mirror and we act but we don't go through this intermediary state of emoting and thinking. So last night I was sort of slowly and clumsily doing some self-dialogue on older things I'd written down. And then when I was editing it, I often have things pop up in awareness that I want to write down and then I noticed that some of it was getting a little bit tipping towards the whole going too far with extrapolations that scare my brain because they're sort of like prophecy or premonition or I'm not sure what they are but so then after that I was thinking to myself, I don't know, maybe I should just not do any self-dialogue until after ECPR because I don't want to freak my brain out. It's a week away and I want to get there. And so I was sort of settled with that and thinking that, well, if I do some, I'll just give a little bit of update of how I'm doing with taking the hearty nutritional supplement and things like that. And then today, I wrote down so much and it wasn't anything scary so I was thinking well maybe it would be good to actually do some self-dialogue on the new stuff and see how that feels because I think there's a bit more energy behind it when the context from which it was written is still kind of there and I don't know if that's true for sure, but I just thought, well, maybe I'll talk about some of these things I wrote down today. Even though I told myself I wouldn't 
talk about anything. Doesn't mean I can't write stuff down, but again, this process can also lead to freaking one's brain out a little bit. But I think that's part of extending the comfort zone of this whole process because when one is seeing possibilities, one can see scary possibilities too. And I thought of a funny one yesterday and I wrote down that map consciousness is kind of like nervous system cleaning. It's cleaning out all the thought structures and programs, or maybe not all of them, but some of them. And so just like when one cleans one's colon and does an enema or something, you might look in the toilet and notice that there's some pretty nasty looking stuff there. And in the same way, map consciousness is cleansing out these old thought structures and holograms that when they're cleansed out of the nervous system, we have to look at them unfortunately, and they can sort of re-scare us in a way because we're looking at them and, and what the mind is imagining feels like it's happening. So it's almost like there's this thought plaque matrix that needs to be cleaned out of the nervous system and this thought plaque matrix of sound in a way is a plaque around the brain cells. And just like the colon can have a mucoid plaque of accumulated stuff throughout life, it seems like the brain cells can accumulate thoughts and holograms and things that no longer serve us to actually absorb the proper nutrition of light perception of the moment. It's We're not really hydrating with these new perceptions because all the old stuff is encasing all the brain cells and it's like these thought sound vibrations are around all the brain cells and the brain cells can't respond to new light sound information and then in responding actually create appropriate action and response due to the correct impression but the scary thing I wrote and I wrote a little yikes and I remember last time when I started to have to take a Seroquel a couple of weeks ago the video before my brain wouldn't fall asleep, I was saying, oh, I thought of this scary thing, but it didn't scare me. But I still, my brain got scared the next night. So I don't know if talking about this will be bad. I just don't want to scare my brain. It seems so sensitive, like it just wants to sit with beautiful things. So to talk about things that aren't beauty, it gets a little bit scared and, and wants to run away from that. I was thinking about how we've been programmed to preform our words, preform our sentences before we say them and while people are talking. So we're programmed and they're not even our words. They're coming from this collective matrix of soundscapes and sound programs that we've collected over time to respond or react as our me structure. So it's a bunch of recordings. And then I was thinking about how in science they say stuff happens in our brain before we do it and before we're even conscious that we're going to do it. So something happens in the brain and then we think that we're going to do that thing. So we think we thought the thing and then that's why we did it but it already happened in the brain before we were consciously aware that we thought it. 
So they're saying like, is there a free will? But so in a way, the program is responding for us and it's using our brain and our neurology to respond. And it's already created the response before we know it. And we think that we thought it, but we're being thinked. Our brains are being used. Science thinks it's this interesting phenomenon, but really our brains are being used by these programs and we're speaking as these programs. So again, it's more like language viruses. And so when we go beyond the program and map consciousness, we can see these programs and I feel like when we go beyond the programs and we're living in beauty and spontaneity and all these other rich human dimensions, when we start to fall out of that because we lose the energy of that, it's one of the ways that we react so violently to again being dipped into thought is that when we're in those clear spaces of perception and everything's beautiful, we're very vulnerable and sensitive and we're acting in the moment based on the beauty that we're perceiving. But when we start to run out of that energy of beauty and we start to see the ugliness, we react very violently to this ugliness that society's created. So there's some beauty and when we're walking in so-called mania, we're sort of seeing that and augmenting that. And it's creating, the perception of that is creating new brain cells for that. So that's the blueprint. But it loses steam, I think partially because it's something that needs to be walked out with other people. It's not something that is supposed to be a personal phenomenon, it's actually the opposite of that. But if one is only in it by oneself, at some point it's bound to become something that seems personal. So I think there's definitely an importance in not making it personal and one way to do that is to be there with someone else. And I was actually thinking today it would be cool to create a house and live with people who can access this and actually live in a different way and support each other in this non-individualism and not allowing each other to make it into this personal energy and this personal thing because it's it's not and I think going into it alone is has a higher chance of making it personal and I don't know if that's true per se I don't think that's true for everybody I think some people manage to go through it and and sort of abide in an enlightened state. But I think for people who go into map consciousness and then are labeled as mental illness, to go back there safely, we might need each other somewhat. And I don't know if that's true, but it could be another experiment to create a house where people live together like that. Not necessarily a healing house, but just a living house. do want to create a respite center, but that would be a little bit different maybe. So it just kind of freaked out my brain to really see, holy crap, like we're basically just picking from this pool of recordings and it's coming up as a reaction before we even know it and it's, it's like living through us.
and no wonder after coming down from map consciousness we're so in opposition to that because it's so fake and I feel like we get triggered out of mania by things that remind us of me or things that kind of hurt or past traumas or people being traumatized and eventually that vulnerability that is seeing the beauty and acting in the moment is turned back into some of one of the levels of thought and it's usually not a good one because the person is very vulnerable and so can be pushed down to the lowest places in society because they have no protection of this ego structure and that's why I feel a family can be a trigger for this too because family thinks that they know who we are and when our brain mutates and we're not really that same me they can almost cause the mutation to reverse and go back to who we were before and and we don't want to go back to that and then we act out in ways or whatever you want to call it and then it's seen as symptoms of a mental illness but really staying at the level of the me is a mental illness and and trying to transcend it with all the pressures of society is is, is a challenge and that's why I think that it could be helpful to have more people supporting each other to keep these societal structures at bay. So in mania, so-called mania, we're in this state of seeing and acting and it can take us on quite a journey and quite a tangent in relationship to one's current trajectory of life. And one can go on a tangent and then go 180 degrees the other way and perpendicular and all over the place. There's no reference to, I should be doing this and it's this time so I should be doing that, which is all functional societal programming, which has a certain place for sure. But with all that extra energy, one totally ignores those things. So we're seeing and acting in mania, and it also happens in so-called psychosis, seeing and acting. And when, when it goes back to the level of thought and sees the danger of any kind of thought structure, one acts and it is according to that level which is usually fear or anger or all these different levels of the emotions actually if you look at dr. David Hawkins scale of consciousness all these lower levels um, below the level of 200 are sort of the emotional reactions that can happen and that's the level of consciousness whereas at the higher levels then one acts in a different way. So I feel like mania is above the dimension of thought. It's like having one's head above the clouds. And then one dips back into thought. One is seeing, seeing and acting, but based on scary stuff. All of the thought structures are scary. And one sees when one goes above the level of thought and dips back in, one sees everything as an emergency. Because above the level in mania, one seeing and acting, seeing and acting. And when we're in an emergency situation, a regular consciousness person definitely goes into seeing and acting. But one is in seeing and acting when one is in map consciousness. So when one is in the level of thoughts, in map consciousness, one sees the emergency of that. And people can see prophesize where it's going to head if people keep operating at the level of thought 
and it's absolutely terrifying and and one's brain in a higher energy state then in the level of thought can extrapolate and associate all kinds of possibilities from this big matrix of thought structures when one goes up to the level of mania and comes back down one sees that the current level of society is an emergency situation and that's where I don't want my brain to go right now and I was thinking I'm wondering if ECPR will be a psychoactive substance that level of compassion that has healed me when that person came to me in the psych ward and and just listened and with her energy I think that space is one of the biggest healers and love and compassion are psychoactive substances or psychoactive energies and then another freaky thing I thought of was what if language was a privilege and if it was used wrongly it could be taken away just like law if you break the law then someone might be punished and this isn't even in terms of actual reward and punishment it's just do we really have freedom of speech or freedom to use language however we want and how we've used it has created a lot of suffering and everything and to me it's just interesting that now it seems like language is a privilege or not everybody is able to acquire language so there's something to this whole what are we doing with language and, and what is that doing to us and what is that doing to the next generation we have to think about humanity as a being as a totality together not all these separate individuals and we're actually weakened by the way we use language the me and and success and worry and stress we're actually using language to weaken us and what's really destroying us is language and how we use it against ourselves and each other and I think language and words could be seen as nutrition and we need so much more nutrition to balance off all the stress we impose upon ourselves through these programs and and they've been imposed upon us through how we're raised and educated and and the value systems were given and and written over the natural value systems that are innate in our nervous system if it wasn't overwritten and there's a current of language there's a language scape And I feel there's a wellspring of insight that can be given voice to in the moment. And this is a different way to use language and to allow language to flow through us. So it's a current of insight language, which is something new. It's new in the moment without accumulating. And we become a voice of insight, which is wisdom in a way. And when this wisdom and insight switch happens in the brain, at first it's kind of nonsensical, but it can be pruned. It's almost like an explosion of learning every second. And we need to prune our brain 
every second, not just, oh, I grew up, I developed, I pruned my brain, I filled my brain with knowledge, and that's all I'm going to go by for the rest of my life, plus or minus 1%. This is like 100% new each moment. And part of the trouble is actually starting to have a sense for how to speak this language in a way, how to prune it in a way where it can still meet people. Because if I was talking about aliens and stardust and it might not be able to meet people and I don't even know if what I'm saying now has any sense of meeting people at all, but maybe that's part of the self-dialogue process is talking and talking so then my brain has heard enough insights to trust the process of insight and part of what I've been learning lately is is how to communicate with that and it's been met with opposition for sure I'll say something and people don't see what I'm saying so I don't know if anyone will see what I'm saying with this and it doesn't matter again the particular thing it just matters that maybe if, if one can see what what I'm saying one can see that one can start to see what one is saying for oneself and together not about right or wrong and all these false structures but about seeing and perceiving in the moment and the moment is always new so if I say something about one moment or as a moment it's almost irrelevant the next moment it's not about this is correct it's about speaking as the moment and and having that take root in the brain and maybe finding other people who can speak as the moment too. Not as, oh, that doesn't sound right, that sounds wrong, that's blah, 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 blah. Like, it's about the moment is always new and getting one's brain in touch with that. And I would hope that other people who maybe have gone into that state spontaneously can get some of it back. because it's really important to be able to speak in possibility. And speak in beauty and perception and infinity and quantum and all these other modes of using language as opposed to past, present, future and all this sort of functional language and individual language to keep us separate and accumulating our own crap. And I started watching a TED talk by Pietro Boselli. And he is an academic and a model. And he is quite a beautiful man. But I didn't finish watching it yet, but I will. But he was talking about how learning in one domain helps one learn in another domain. And he started by saying that if a little girl was sitting down and she had access to a big bunch of pencil crayons with colors. How she selected them would be a type of fitness of colors. And I was thinking that her perception, her looking at the colors, is what selects for the colors. It's not some blank process. It's not 
closing one's eyes and selecting at random. It's looking at what one considers beautiful and selecting for that. And this goes along with what Dr. Bruce Lipton said years ago, which is perception rewrites DNA. And he has a talk called The Biology of Belief, which I think is even better than his book, Biology of Belief. And I watched both, and he talks about epigenetics and how he even said in the talk there's something called genetic engineering genes where there's genes that know how to write new genes if needed for survival. So he gave an example of putting a type of bacteria in a test tube with a type of medium that was poisonous to the bacteria and it should all die. They do not have the genes, the proteins or anything to process this material and not be poisoned by it. But they found that when they did that, there was actually some that survived. And then they checked the DNA and the bacteria had created the DNA needed to create the protein needed to digest and process this poison as food. Even saying that now to myself, I wasn't planning to go there, but I wonder if a person who operates on perception, the level of perception, sort of above and beyond of a different quality of just the thought structures and being programmed. If one can see the thought structures and actually use them as food, I guess, which would be maybe that this perception has a level of compassion, whatever that means, but compassion needs something to be compassionate about or like if everything was perfect in the world, there would be no concept of compassion. But there is this thing called compassion, and I think that's another fundamental factor I haven't really extrapolated very much, but maybe I will now because going to ECPR is definitely something about compassion for other people. And, and maybe in a way, seeing suffering as thought, perception can sense just to be spacious and hold compassion for that. And maybe in a way it sort of dissolves that without anyone really knowing what happened. It's sort of a different thing beyond trying to fix or just seeing that something sounds like it needs some healing and just being that healing space and I actually remember I don't really talk too much about Dion Vimal but I did study with him temporarily and when he was here well when he was where I live and he I remember he says you become a healing force just by your look you heal things and so sometimes things that he said pop into my awareness and I'm not really sure 
actually something I'd like to do one day is go and see him and kind of thank him for things, but um, not sure if I'll do that and when. Seems like I've put several levels of possibilities out there for the future. But he also said something about, I don't remember where, what talk, but he said, I know it sounds kind of schizophrenic, but it will have to do for now. So to me it was a clue that this thing that is called mental illness is actually part of the program. So the level of thought would see it as mental illness, but people who have been labeled and have different contexts for it see it in a different way, but still kind of play the role of having a mental illness because it's pretty hard to avoid. If one just denies it, then sometimes it can make it worse perhaps, but I'm, I don't really want to go into that now, but Dion Vimal has just said a few things that just make me realize that it's all kind of part of the design. I won't go there now because it's freaky brain territory. So perception selects for DNA and genes and creates genes, writes genes. So I feel like we don't have enough beauty genes in our body. And if we perceive beauty, then we can start to see more and more beauty. Like this morning, I was walking through a room and I just looked over and there was the weirdest looking bug. Again, my peripheral vision just picked it out. It wasn't that I was staring at that one point on the ground. It was in the whole perceptual field and it being there, that thing, that insect, that thing of wonder and curiosity that I wasn't wondering about, I didn't know it ever existed. It picked out that new, beautiful, interesting, fascinating thing and my head moved to look at it. So it was picked out in my perceptual field and then that moved my head. So perception caused my head to move towards that interesting thing. Not, oh, I'm looking for this and looking for that and just going like this with blinders on. And so I'll share a picture of it because it was really weird looking. So I feel like we need more beauty DNA. So part of my job as a manic is to see beauty and and my perceptual field the whole field which is part of what creates genes because if one is focused on thought all the stress genes and things are being activated and and recreated but if one is relaxed in their perception and let the whole field select for something when I look at that thing it creates something in my brain to actually witness that insect which most people would walk by and not even see or if they did see it they would just squash it so so it's different that way so there's something about the perception of thought stuff that is sort of ugliness and having compassion for it and maybe in the compassion for that, maybe that can actually 
make it beautiful somehow. Like it can maybe be food for perception. When right now it feels like poison, like can the brain that's gone above the clouds in a way to that other dimension, can one come back in a way and and use those thought things as food? Like with m what I want to do when I go back home is create compassion and, and psychological safety. So in order to do that, one needs people with suffering thoughts and the objective in a way is to to diminish that suffering. But in a way the suffering is food for the compassion. It's kind of this weird way to think about it, but I'm trying to find a way because I do know that I will be to see maybe if I can just be there and listen without judging even those thought structures, then maybe there's something that does something. Because when, because how I've shared that some things that I've said have been met with quite opposition because I'll say something about maybe something beautiful and people can't see it. They'll be like, well, that just sounds like, you know, you're painting a picture or creating formula, but I actually do see those might show that in a way. And being here in California, I would do seeing more beauty because there's just more beauty around and I can be outside more and and stuff like that. So I think that's part of how I like to be is outside more and I wrote a couple things down about design for when I go back home. But I better end this video and I think I'll make another one because I haven't even got to anything I wrote down today except for that thing about Pietro and I haven't listened to his whole talk but I will because he was saying the word algorithm and genetic algorithm related to engineering. So I'm talking about the word algorithm loosely because I don't really know what it means exactly. I could find out, but that would probably just create this long extrapolation. So I'll wait to do that a little bit longer. May beauty entrain you. So again, thinking about language, I was thinking about how it seems there's certain words that reinforce the me and reinforce the separative sense of self, like say the word should. Should creates the me, it's sort of a measurement against the structures of society. And it's better or worse, good, bad, time trying to become something better. So there are these words that reinforce the me which wouldn't be a part of the language of infinity and oneness and beauty and quantum. And again saying I should have done something is saying that there is an active will when really if we're in relaxed perception there's no will there's just awareness and action based on awareness which feels spontaneous and adequate and somebody mentioned that 
there's this weightiness and I was thinking that the weight is the movement of the non-movement of thought so when we think usually it makes us sort of second-guess ourselves we don't just act and so when we second-guess or we're kind of thinking and deciding it actually creates a contraction in our muscles and our nervous system and I've talked about this before and I feel in a way that's kind of how matter is created because the thoughts create a neurological and chemical response in the body that sort of changes the whole structure of everything and it makes us more dense and it makes us heavier so there's this non-movement that we're always adjusting to instead of just being in this natural flux and flow of the universe which people who've gone into map consciousness know all about you don't have to explain or guess or, or wonder if it's there it's there experientially it's the difference between being a scientist studying quantum physics and having a brain that is operating based on quantum physics so the weight is the non-movement of the muscles in the nervous system because the thought structures of should shouldn't can can't are are warping it so it weighs down the nervous system and I wonder if there can be a lightness when the light of perception is allowed to run through the nervous system and just be the nutrition for it and be very fluid and that's what happens in mania so I already know it's possible so the light is running through the system instead of sound sound comes out of the system but it comes out based on the light of perception there's no extra sound in the nervous system and memory is is a dirty nervous system and what I've learned in terms of what I need when I go back is beauty as in nature and other things organic food and a healthy food store money to just buy healthy food and not have to eat junk all the time I want to be good to my body again silence nobody clankering things or hearing TVs or traffic noise but also a place to sing and play loud music so not think oh I can't be noisy because this person will be bothered so those are some of the things I think I need and a question came up about we aren't separate individual me's so then what do we do and I think the answer is that it's an action it's not a concept it's not a formula when we really perceive oneness we act as that and so we're not acting according to programs and we're acting as a mirror so we can sense what's going on and act according to that so what actions are universal and can one exist in the universal and so it's not a thought but it's a perception and I wonder what would we be doing about things if we were thinking together and acting together not as separate individuals and can we move on perception and not this illusion of choice which is the programs so does life make choices or does it perceive and act and we're all individuals 
choosing based on this thought sphere when I feel like there's other spheres, there's a beauty sphere and a perception sphere. And even if we can't feel like we're one, we're all acting on the same Gaia. So we all have this same canvas. So anything we do on this canvas, directly or indirectly, affects somebody else. We're rearranging matter and consciousness. It seems like there's this butterfly sphere in terms of the butterfly effect and we're not seeing it. And I feel like in so-called psychosis we do connect with that because we see what thought does and what we've done and what we're doing as humanity and we feel like, oh my god, look what I'm doing. There is this sense of complete oneness, but some of it can be scary too. But that's also part of learning because by seeing that, one can see what not to do. One can see why, not just in terms of words and explanations, but actual in-touchness. And we're all borrowing from the thought sphere and the matter sphere. We're sort of like volunteers on Earth. But can we create? Can we create new sounds and insights? And somebody mentioned something about if I lose my individuality, somebody else will come in and control me. So we're afraid to lose that. And I was thinking about how through map consciousness, we lose our individuality, we lose our boundaries. We're boundless and then we're dancing and playing and 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 living in that energy for a while and then when we go through the so-called psychosis instead of being received compassionately we do have people coming in and controlling our lives and in a lot of people's cases their life might be controlled for the rest of their life so what this person said was kind of true in a way because the universe can come in and make us lose our individuality. And there's a real importance in journeying together and starting to say otherwise because just one person seeing it isn't enough. And the mirror neurons are always calculating even if we think we have this free will of thought. So every time we choose something and, and our body tenses up because it wasn't a living response to the moment. It was some kind of program that can never fully adequately respond to the moment. It's messing with our physiology and our body and contorting us ever so slightly. So with these programs we think they're good and efficient and everything but they're not because they are damaging our system. So the nervous system and the body always knows. And in terms of this language of beauty, we always say I this and I that and I'm wondering if there's a way to Instead, always have the eye as a reference point, but to have this non-local reference point of beauty. So, for example, when I was walking in that room and I saw that interesting bug, and I could say, I saw a bug, but in a way, the bug saw me because perception picked it out. Like, I wasn't looking for the bug. So to start with the element of beauty first, like awe of a bug that perception selected for, not this eye, like there's no eye there. And the way we speak makes it seem like there is. But if we spoke based on what we're perceiving first, putting the perception or the beauty, or the richness, or the awe first. 
something about the space being filled with awe based on this perception, which is something that perception picked out. It's more like insect in awareness or insect perception picked up or insect perception picked out insect perception picked out beauty so it's about the insect that perception picked out and there was this sense of beauty but not really like I saw this bug and it was interesting because when there's no center of eye thinking that's when perception, the field of perception, can pick out things for us. It's kind of like if we're on our phone and we go to a website and then later we're on our phone again and there'll be an advertisement for something that was on the website we were on recently. Because the algorithm knows that you were on that so maybe you're going to buy from there. So we're going to put that back on the screen so you might buy it because you already showed that you wanted that so in the same way in reality this whole screen of awareness that we have this whole vast field of perception by being relaxed and letting beauty select for itself it just keeps selecting for that but when we're thinking certain things we're always selecting for things related to our thoughts so then we think, well, think better thoughts, but those are still within the level of the programming because we can only think something within the level of the programming. We're never going to be thinking, I want to see this really bizarre looking bug that I've never seen before. Yet if we're thinking something else, we're not going to see the really bizarre looking bug. So to not think anything and be empty allows for the whole screen to go from beauty to beauty to beauty to beauty to beauty and something always different and rich and the thing with saying perception picked out or perception grasped or perception something it also shows that anyone could have seen that I could be looking at it and say that somebody else could say that as well because they can see it too and in a way that's about speaking as the moment, speaking as something in the moment and not of like something that happened yesterday, which is I experience blah, blah, blah. There could be another sentence that says something about a different beautiful thing to somebody else after being prompted by this beautiful insect to actually augment the beauty of the moment. Maybe we need to speak about nature more. And I have a passage that I want to read from Krishnamurti that talks about if you have no relationship with a tree, not just as a name and a botanical chunk of knowledge, then you can't have relationship with anything.
or sensitivity to anything. And I was thinking about how we have this small sliver of experience and consciousness called free will, that we call free will. And the rest of it is subconscious or part of the intelligence of life, like the beating of our heart. We don't have to think beat, beat, beat for it to beat. But we have this very small little bit of supposed free will. And I think that's actually the slice of the virus. I think this free will is a virus. And it's like this very small viral chunk of reality that is just in structures of language that makes us think that we have free will. And maybe because we think we think we have free will. And maybe that and maybe that phrase, I think therefore I am, is actually correct. The thinking creates the I, which is the separation. It's more like, I think therefore I have an ego. I think therefore my ego is. Or I think therefore the ego is. And it thinks it has free will by thinking. But I think this thinking is a virus. And it's this virus that keeps us disconnected with society and creates human beings to be like viruses on the planet, destroying everything. And I've come to this point a few times. It's like, will we choose, if there is any choice, will we, will we choose to not choose? Will we see what we're doing? And we think it's free will, but it's not because it contorts us and warps our nervous system and poisons us with cortisol. So every act of free will is actually contributing to our own destruction. Free will acting separately from others. It's like this small slice of reality. It's this little frequency. It's this frequency of language and sound and how we're using it to destroy ourselves and separate ourselves from that which we are not separate. And trying to break life down into all these individual little component parts. When the perception of the whole is what creates life. So you can't break it into bits and then think it means anything. There's a lot of different bird sounds here. I remember when I first connected with that energy. Or first connected with me. The bird sounds seemed a lot louder. And I think it's because that energy increases one's sensitivity to nature and beauty. But then it also increases one's sensitivity to the noise of humanity. But in a way, it's a way for a human brain to have somewhat of a measure or compass of what to move away from and what to move towards. Move away from the noise of humanity somewhat and move towards the sound of nature and beauty. as a measure of what's actually good and harmonious with our nervous system. So usually we have this thought compass, but all of a sudden we be, 
come in touch with this energy compass of something else which just moves us away from things that the human body isn't naturally attuned to. It's unnaturally attuned to thought programs through conditioning, but it's artificial. It's really artificial intelligence. It's artificial intellect, which has some functionality and, and helpfulness, but it's gone way beyond what it was meant to do. And the language of thought is not the language of humanity. It was a tool to help us create a humanity that's harmonious, but we're using it wrongly. So nature is definitely revolting and creating brains that can't have that take over in the same way. If we can't be responsible in that way, then nature will do it for us. And today I was thinking about the commercialism involved in individuality. So individuality is an illusion that we don't feel on a daily basis. So on a daily basis we have our separatist lives and we accumulate things and we have to be programmed to believe in the me because the me needs goods and needs success and needs a home and all these separate things. If we acted as a humanity together, we would create a different society and different structures altogether. So the economy relies on the me. It's the economy. And I wonder if we can create an econo-we. But I was thinking about how in map consciousness a lot of times we decide, oh, we don't need this stuff, or give stuff away, or be super generous, or spend lots of money on something we think will help us create something good, or we just feel hyper-abundant because we're connected with the source of the universe, the richness of the universe, which is more richness of perception and action, which could lead to wealth, but not necessarily we also have a timeless state where we feel we're already wealthy, past, present, future, all merge into one. And so I was just thinking about how it's often considered a sign of pathology to give away all this stuff. This is something a manic would do. Play in the sand with one's feet. So I was saying something about how we sometimes give stuff away and it's considered a symptom of pathology but it could actually be a sign of oneness because we connect with the richness of oneness. And again, going back to what I was talking to myself about with how we translate everything into the current language which is, I feel rich so we think in terms of monetary wealth, but it's a different dimension and diverse inner richness of the human experience that again, um, we translate. So I talked about how when we only speak ego and we're sensitive, 
we can turn those sensitivities into more thoughts against ourself or thoughts against ourselves when it has nothing to do with that but that's the language we speak so So it's similar in that way, that we feel so abundant, but in life abundance is mostly thought of in terms of material wealth. And we feel so rich that we can just give away our material stuff because we can get anything we want. But really it is that we have everything we need. We feel so inwardly rich, but then when we connect to that, the outer behaviors are perceived by others as pathological when really they're just sort of mistranslations of what we are sensing and not direct mistranslations there could be some truth to if we can connect to that inward richness we can manifest becoming outwardly rich maybe but it wouldn't really matter it would just be if that was the path of that person as a manifestation of consciousness. And we feel generous because we're rich in that energy, which can manifest in any rich experience as a human. And when we feel like we're connected with infinity, we'll be provided for by infinity. And we feel we are beauty, so as a manifestation of acting beautifully, we feel like we'll always have access to that. But when we fall out of that, maybe there's a lot of desperation in feeling like we've disconnected from the source of all life. So no wonder there's this period of depression. And we think when we're in that beautiful state that people will respond to us. But then we sort of see over, t over a period of time that society eventually destroys beauty. It doesn't value it. And I wonder what compassion would do. Because it's one thing to be here in this great place of beauty, but it's another again to feel like there's suffering in the world and, and something needs to happen to transform some of it. So I could stay here in a beautiful place forever, but I feel like there's this other force in a way of compassion that knows that. 
I have to go back and help my friends. Or just be there and be non-judgmental and, and different things that I've had people be for me along the way. And I wouldn't have got to this place without that. I want, I think about what compassion has done for me. And I was thinking about the clowning and caring that Patch Adams talks about too, because laughter is an important element. And I feel like taking meds stops that perception of urgent danger. So one's again in the level of thought and they're sensitive, but medication dulls one out to that. So then one isn't seeing danger everywhere. It blurs one's perception, so we're not always reacting to the danger and and making a fuss about it. Getting upset, which is called our moods, but it's not. It's the mood of Gaia seeing through us and, and reacting and calling it out. So medication keeps the status quo. And that's why I feel like it's important to create safety for oneself. But for me, it's also important to say that the status quo isn't okay. And the people that are not okay with the status quo are being medicated into being okay with the status quo. And it's not about the people, it's humanity, it's Gaia, it's the collective that's not okay with this. It's a voice beyond thought. The thought sphere is scary. It's poison. And the Gaia sphere is So it's important not to get involved in thought. And thought is the me. And words are just pointers and they point at something, but how do we point at infinity? And can words be streamers instead of pointers? Can they kind of wave at something? And the quantum world is more based on waves of possibility. So we can we use words to be waves of possibility and not these divisive instruments? Can words be a flux and a flow and a stream? I was at a bookstore and there was a book even called Virus of the Mind and talking about the science of memes and it's probably stuff that I've been talking about with myself. And I like books, and I wish I could 
read more of them, but I feel like I will extrapolate way too much. And life has been taken over by thought. And somebody was saying, a researcher, that viruses actually help create the cerebral cortex because they inserted the DNA into the genome in order for that to grow. So in a way, if viruses did that, they created the brain so the brain could create language. But now in a way, language has become a virus of life. It could be used poetically, it could be used in harmonious ways, but it's not being used in that way. It's using us. I just want to add one little blurb that when I was editing my videos earlier today, I had a little spark of my heart starting to race and it was just one strong beat and it was sort of electric. And then when it happened, I had this hologram released of a past life wanting to sort of come through and it felt a little bit scary. And I was thinking to myself, oh, this is why I wasn't going to continue to do self-dialogue because I'm starting to freak myself out a little bit. So, last night I took half a Seroquel and just one Trazodone. I didn't take one and a half. So we'll see what happens tonight. I'm probably going to do the same thing. So maybe I will actually cool it on the self-dialogue. Quick video here. Last night, I was saying that I had a tiny bit of fear from my extrapolations and perhaps I need to ease off, at least in making videos about them. And then when I was going to sleep, it felt like that thing again where I was almost looking on the inside with inner eyes. And it wasn't just like falling into a dream, but what it really felt like was remote viewing. My mind was going to these different places and I could see them in great detail. One was like this greenhouse with these vertical tile things and it was kind of small and the paint was sort of chipping off and then I also saw myself walking and talking to my phone, like doing a video, kind of like, yes, it was like, it was like a quick review of the day that I could see kind of faintly. It was really strange. And I had taken half a Seroquel and one Trazodone and I wasn't quite falling asleep, so I took another half of Seroquel. I guess I could have taken another half of Trazodone, but I just didn't really want to chance it. 
So I have to be a bit careful with the self-dialogue these next few days, I think. And I'm also wondering if I would do well on polyphasic sleep. And I think I've said this before because my brain just doesn't want to fall asleep. But if I stay up all the time and sleep a couple times a day for half an hour, then I'll sleep for sure. And that would be kind of sleeping like a manic. But then I would probably need to transform into a superhuman and get a lot done. So I'm thinking that might be worth a try, though it might get my brain into more trouble than it wants to be in. So I'll keep going with this hearty nutritionals and and eCPRs next week. And so I'll keep going towards that and then see what happens. I really hope my brain can just hold it together. And I wanted to stay here in California until mid-August, but I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I hope I make it till at least mid-May. We will see. Hopefully after I do eCPR, I can go off the Seroquel completely, because it'll be a lot longer than I usually like to take it. But in this situation, I just can't chance it. So that's my update for today so far. I might share a little bit more later, but I'm going to try to relax a bit more and enjoy the sunshine and try to see if I can slow time down a little bit because it seems to go by really quick. So yeah. So that's the scoop. I'm doing a quick video to say that I wasn't sweeping chimneys, but I was in a sulfur hot spring. And I used some of the sand to exfoliate my face and my body. And I was in there for about two hours and I also did two cold dunks in an adjacent stream. And then the sun went down and there were crickets and frogs making lots of cool sounds and it was just a really beautiful place and I'm wondering if I will be able to sleep better. I'm going to again try to just take half a Seroquel and see if my mind will stay in one place or if it'll decide to do some what felt like remote viewing or astral travel or whatever the heck, I don't even know, or maybe like lucid dreaming, something about subconscious stuff that my mind doesn't want to click into sleep. And today earlier I was sitting outside and reading and I was sitting in a spot where there was mosquitoes and I noticed that I noticed they came in kind of a group 
Like there would be like six of them coming at me trying to bite me at the same time. And then when they all gave up, they all went away. But then a few minutes later, they'd all come back again at the same time. And it was like they were doing this intelligent attack, knowing that hopefully at least one of them would get to bite me. Whereas if they just came one at a time, then it was less likely that they would be successful. I don't know if that's true, I just made it up. But the next couple of days, I'm just gonna continue to be a little bit more silent with things and maybe try to connect with that place that can just be less active. My mind's already pretty silent, but I still have this self-dialogue urge happening in a way because I wrote lots of stuff down. So I have the urge to talk about it, but I wonder if I can connect with that space that knows that in that silence and non-activity something even more important than what seems important right now might come into awareness. And I don't know what that is, but I've just been going on this direction of self-dialogue for so long that I don't know if there's something else. And maybe it's just taking the opportunity to just really go into that non-active state, especially right now when it seems like my brain doesn't want to go to sleep. So now is a good opportunity because since I've been in California, I have been doing some self-dialogue and my brain has been going to some places that I don't want it to go. So I think I'll continue to write stuff down and then see if I want to talk less about it because I could keep talking about that stuff forever and I could be saying the same thing over and over and I don't even know it because it seems new to me when I say it or when I write it down. but it's all in a certain area. And so maybe there's an area that I'm missing that I'm not really separating myself from that process long enough to realize. It's hard to say. Perhaps I could just take pictures of my notebooks and put them on my blog and then just talk about other things in the moment. And then not use prompts. So that would actually eliminate some of this stress of it in a way because one is referring to one's notebook. 
I really don't know. I really don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm not sure what I'll do with it all. I guess the thing is, like I said, probably a couple times already, is just giving space to see what else might need space in order to arise. I'm not sure. I'm sitting here with a Bodhi tree leaf almost in my eye. This Bodhi tree is a grandchild of the original, where the Buddha became enlightened, apparently. And I wanted to read a passage by Krishnamurti about listening to a tree, not just to the sounds of the leaves, in the wind, but something else. It has a unique leaf, and there's mosquitoes trying to eat me too. Yesterday I watched one bite me, and I was wondering if one can spread one's DNA about the world through allowing mosquitoes to bite. And then DNA, my DNA, becomes the mosquitoes and all of a sudden all the mosquitoes are me. It's kind of weird. I, I know that's a really weird one, but... Like, does our vibration is it contained in our blood and if mosquitoes bite us does that pass information to mosquitoes which passes information to other things and blah 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 like there's an intelligence here so is it actually intelligent to let mosquitoes bite I don't think so, but it's kind of fun to think about. And last night after I was at that hot springs for two hours and also dipped in a cold river twice, I slept really well. I felt so relaxed before I was falling asleep and none of that remote viewing type stuff of in between waking and sleeping was happening. Maybe just a tiny iota, but then it didn't continue. So I only took half a Seroquel. I didn't have to take the other half and And I took one trazodone and I didn't have to take another half of that. So I will continue with that and 
take the other half of the Seroquel if I need to. Feeling itchy all over. And last night at the hot springs was fun. Just laughing and being ridiculous with people and and today I was thinking, what can I be present for? Like, what doesn't feel like effort? And it's not a matter of not liking or anything. It's just a matter of if there was a little bit more alignment, would that move me towards thriving and even more energy? I think I like talking, so if I was teaching in some fashion, I'd probably like it. Yesterday there was a dialogue thing and I just felt like I wanted to be talking more. And not as like talking more in that situation, but I had this sense that if I had the opportunity to talk more, I would like that. So where is what I have to say needed? Because even where I am now, I'm sensing that some of the more general stuff in dialogue, to like talking about the human condition in general, or what's beyond it, which I feel like I've touched and maybe able to touch somewhat on a daily basis and it just doesn't really feel special because it's been somewhat normalized. But I feel like I still have more to say in terms of the mental health area. What I'm getting at is if I were to talk about things at the level of enlightenment and blah 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 people aren't really going to listen but if I talk about mental health stuff people might listen because it's more specific to that yet at the same time I think it applies to a larger perspective it's just not necessarily the one that needs what I have to say and I don't mean needs as in I'm just trying to f I'm just trying to figure out how to be in alignment with something so that the thing that I do effortlessly which is maybe talk about mental health and related stuff is received it's not necessarily applicable where I'm at now whereas if I was back in mental health, maybe it would be. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I do know that mosquitoes are making new mosquitoes out of me. And I was also thinking about how I can listen really well, meaning if I'm in a room with several people and 
there's one conversation going on, I probably hear 99% of the words without drifting off or any thinking of my own. So it's complete silence, only hearing the words that people say and actually hearing what they say. So if I can listen that well, which I seem to be able to, I don't know for sure, what should I be listening to? Like where should I be and what should I be doing with my senses? To sort of be the best translator of whatever it is. So if I can listen really well yet I'm at a political conference which I have no interest in or no real context I shouldn't be sitting there listening to that because it's sort of a waste. It's a waste of that listening. Whereas somebody else who can really listen who is into that sphere would be perfect in that area. So I feel like where can I be where I can listen? What do I want to listen to or what can I listen to? And also have an opportunity to say what I need to say. Or say what I'm here to say. It's sort of like alignment with some kind of alignment with the universe and everybody has a little bit different of a path. And I'm seeing where I am now as an opportunity to discover what that alignment might be because it's not staying in California forever. I'm having this sense that I don't want to go back to work because even where I am right now I have quite a bit of time to myself, but it doesn't feel like enough. It feels like I want all my time to myself. Not to do nothing, but to work on whatever it is that I need to listen to and say. And maybe that's just more self-dialogue, but I would like to have that mixed in with more embodied stuff, which I haven't found that balance of embodying and talking. I guess part of it would be being able to talk and actually be doing something as opposed to sitting talking to myself. So less abstractions and more real stuff and, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about that before but we'll see how it evolves what I'll design for my return and my brain will be partly the determiner of that because we'll see if it can stay local it seems to want to be non-local it seems to want to travel while my body sleeps And maybe that's okay when I'm back home. I feel like this map consciousness is a puzzle or a game and the brain likes puzzles and games. And in a way, we as ourselves are the biggest puzzle and the biggest game. 
And I think that when we go into map consciousness, the interpersonal becomes more important than the personal. So we become agents of this interpersonal neurobiology that Daniel Siegel talks about. And I feel like we become more interpersonal in that we become subject to what other people's interpretations of us are. So we go into this interpersonal state, vulnerable, and at first we're really energetic and and we're kind of safe in that energy because people don't see that something is happening for us. But then as we lose energy, it's almost like we are the seed of this interpersonal vulnerability and it doesn't catch hold and so we fall out of it back into this personal state but as we do we're interpreted as having some kind of mental illness so we're subject to the interpretations of others and sometimes we become subject to it in that way for the rest of our lives what I'm saying is in that strength of the energy the interpersonal state at first seems powerful like we can affect others but eventually we don't have our message strongly in place so we're giving out all these mixed messages and eventually we're interpreted as having a mental illness by others so can our message be strong enough that we're not interpreted as having a mental illness I'm not sure if that's true but It's like learning how to drive a rocket ship down an alleyway. And I wonder if I'm a translator of this, whatever this is, translating mental illness symptoms into meaning and messages and people with powerful messages. So I wonder what was my message in that state? Need to translate the language that seems like mental illness into something intelligible and that's probably what I've been doing with this self-dialogue anyway and I wonder what we'll talk about when we're not talking about ourselves all the time I think we would be talking about our messages so it could be important to get the message and the message could be that we're getting messages and then finding messages that can meet people somehow and part of this is taking our place in society, which means it has to be something that can meet society. And the mind is beauty, and that beauty wants to create itself through us. And it already created itself, but now it created us and we're destroying it when we could be, when we could take our place as part of that beauty. And there's another reality that's quantum and and they're starting to calculate it but calculating it isn't living it when they first did the calculations for flight for aviation that is not the same as an actual airplane Boeing 747 flying through the air so one is the calculations and the other is the actuality the actuation of that so can we actuate 
this quantum science. And I was listening to something that was saying that they can never completely determine the outcome of a calculation. They can only determine the possibility. And there's a pretty strong possibility of the outcome. But it's not 100%. And I feel like that's probably the wiggle room of miracles. If something was 100% calculatable, there would be no wiggle room. And I think that that inability to calculate something completely is that the universe needs wiggle room to make the miracles happen, which isn't even a miracle, it's just something that is beyond anything we've started to calculate yet. And beyond that, it's our brain can exist in that state that we're calculating. So then how do we calculate it when we are it? And now I'm back on my notes about the Neuroscience Summit. And Dr. Daniel Siegel said that you need careful observation for science, not just measurement. So in a way, I'm doing some careful observation of map consciousness and trans consciousness and, and talking about it. And we have this internal subjective sense and I think the me part of that with all its stories is losing its hold. But part of what happens when it loses its hold is so many of the stories come out to see that we have all these stories. We are becoming non-personal. We are becoming love. And I feel like there's a science of direct perception and insight just looking at something and having an insight into it. And I wonder how we go from short-circuiting the brain to creation. And it could be that one is not engaged with one's creation, so when the energy comes, it short-circuits because it's supposed to go towards this creation. But if one is not in that mode of creation, then it has nowhere to go. And I feel the mind is trying to change the activity of the brain and body. And Dr. Daniel Siegel talks about a process called sifting. And I wrote down that perhaps releasing this self-dialogue will affect people's sifting process related to mental health. And there was a lady that talked about crawl, walk, run. And I feel like I'm in the walking phase. I used to be crawling. Now I'm walking and, and I want to get into that running phase and I, I wonder what that looks like. Last night again I managed to sleep with one trazodone and half a Seroquel so that is good news. I feel that hot spring the other day really helped to mineralize me and calm me down a little bit I guess. And today I got a few cool nature videos. One of them is 
the coolest ever and it's slow motion of a ladybug taking off. Wait, wait, I need to balance. Another one I took was with hummingbirds, and they're just so cute. I could watch them all day long. And I got another close-up video with a ladybug that was really cool. Hovering over him. I'm not getting in. You just pooped on me. What? I can't see what I'm doing. Nature is just really fascinating and cool. And I started to look through some of my old notes when I first went into map consciousness six years ago, and it's interesting how many of the themes are the same. Not all the information, but wanting to help people. Also, there's a lot of stuff about trying to figure out how to navigate that territory. And a lot of it is really out there, like when the lights are on, that means I'm in the other world, or just really weird associations, but it showed that I was really confused about how to operate in that realm. So I took a few pictures, and I'll put some of them in here. 
One of the things I wrote is, when you find the purpose of your pain, you will go through it. And I still feel like I need to go through my pain, the pain that this lithium is suppressing and it's not going to hold it at bay forever. And the purpose is to go through it and when I do get to the point of going through it instead of just suppressing it, I definitely want to document that process. It's probably going to be super ugly and and that's okay. And part of the thing about going through that is that ugliness in a way helps with compassion because if one is in such pain and, and it's an awful state of being, when one gets through it, one can have more compassion for other people's pain because we all have pain. And I've talked about how it seems like some of it is extra, possibly from, from being sensitive to things. And I even wrote something about that sensitivity. I wrote one about being more sensitive. To sound and, and to everything. And I think being sensitive to sound on the outside, one is also sensitive to sound on the inside, which could even be other people's sounds on the inside. And there's even stuff I wrote about the ripple effect of action or inspire people to help the planet just by moving their bodies, which is all implying epigesturetics in a way. And with all the things I wrote about when I do this, this happens and, and it seems like these things are associated. It's, it's almost seeing that the inner is the outer and there's no real difference that the inner affects the outer and the inner is the outer. So knowing that one can create the outer as it's all one process so I was sensing that and feeling like it was hard to take a step without noticing some effect and then trying to adjust to it. So it was quite challenging and eventually I took enough steps that I ended up in the psych ward. And then they restore the sense of being separate again. So I'll keep reading through some of that information. I wrote a lot of pages all those years ago. At home I have notebooks aside from that that I've written since that I haven't really looked at but might be worth a read when I get home. I know one of them has a lot of the whole biochemical stuff, things to do with nutrition that could be helpful that I'm definitely not following right now. I'm just kind of eating cake and ice cream and I still have a little bit more stuff to talk about related to the neuroscience summit and what Dr. Daniel Siegel was saying and again when I say stuff that other people say I'm not 
being critical of it, I'm actually just adding something that I see from what they're saying related to my extrapolation process. So using what they say as a prompt, but sometimes what I say related to what they say has nothing really to do with what they say. But it's helpful in adding to the context I'm creating. So for example, Dr. Daniel Siegel says that mind is an emergent property of the brain, meaning an emergent property is something greater than the sum of its parts. So it's hard to explain the mind from just the materials in the brain. And I was thinking about this related to how as people who go into map consciousness, I feel like we're each cells in a greater something. So if we put all our brains together, a hundred people in map consciousness, there might be something emergent from those people coming together contextually and however it works. So there might be some kind of emergent intelligence from connecting people of this neurotribe because we don't know what the emergent properties of a cohesive, coherent humanity are. And I think the emergent properties of that are how beautifully we experience life in the height of mania, but one can't stay there when one is there by oneself because it's sort of this emergent thing that one can have a taste of but it's difficult to stay in because the conditions aren't right. That would be like asking one water molecule to be a cloud. So a hundred people who are so-called bipolar might form some other cohesion and this emergent property that we can somewhat experience in our brain of mania, beauty, love, oneness, eternity, ecstasy, joy could be our natural state when we're all playing off each other that way together. But it's so difficult to stay there when it's a relational state. It's not like I'm super joyful and I can just be that way forever by myself. Society destroys that. Society destroys that emergent property and there's also the emergent property of altruism and selflessness. And I think oneness is an emergent property of humanity as a whole. Oneness has no meaning if we're not together as a whole. It's only a concept, but there probably is this emergent property of actual oneness, this felt sense, this mere neuron thing. An emergent property of the brain could actually be a quantum brain. And when more people are in concert as quantum brains, then it's more possible for that brain, for the brains to stay in the state of possibility. 
And I was thinking about thoughts as suggestions and how they're hypnotizing. Each thought we hear inside our own head is hypnotizing us. And words in our head are a type of sleepiness. So we're definitely in a hypnogogic trance when we're thinking. So with this whole emergent property of emerging together, merging together, can we take a journey back to manic land and pull everyone there with us? And our brains can exist in the lightscape of insight and intelligence instead of the soundscape of thought. And Dr. Daniel Siegel talked about the four facets that may be emergent properties of energy and information flow. One is subjective experience, one is information processing, one is consciousness, and another is self-organization. And for sure, in map consciousness, information processing goes through the roof. One's subjective experience changes incredibly in quality. One's level of consciousness changes, and there's some kind of self-organization happening of a different kind. And he talks about how complex systems have properties of being chaotic, open systems and non-linear systems. And then he goes on to say that we as humans are complex systems. And he also said that this means just a small input can lead to large, unpredictable results. Does it not make sense that the universe can input even a small amount of some other quality of energy that is causing these large changes in people and their unpredictable results and thought and thinking is all about predicting one's results and staying consistent and he kept using the phrase and this is really weird and I feel like well map consciousness is really weird and It's one thing to do science and discover weirdness about the brain. It's another thing to live through something like map consciousness. And then he said something really weird. He said, the mind has a mind of its own. And then I think to myself, if he, if he as this awesome neuroscience guy is saying the mind has a mind of its own, yet people who connect with that in an embodied way, experiencing that there's this mind that has a mind of its own that can animate us in, in ways according to this mind with a mind of its own, yet as soon as that actually happens, beyond the statement, the abstraction of the mind has a mind of its own, then the person is called mentally ill and all of a sudden they can't integrate, they can't this and that and the next thing. So I just don't understand that. It seems our human brain wants to just abstract about these weirdnesses but as soon as somebody goes into it we want to write them off and drug them so it's my job to awaken the intelligence of manics of the transconscious altruist neurotribe we don't need their help they need ours and if you've been to map consciousness land you know what i'm talking about
So this mind that has a mind of its own has taken me over several times. I want this mind that has a mind of its own to become my mind so I don't need to keep blocking it with these meds and, and fear that energy arising in me. I'm going to set up an experiment about this. And Dr. Daniel Siegel also talked about optimized integration by linking differentiated parts. And I feel as a member of this neuro tribe that I am just a piece of the puzzle. I am just one differentiated part and there's hundreds or thousands of other people out there who are other differentiated parts and we need to link up and integrate through dialogue, through, through creativity, through this other way of living that we've connected with. And when we do that and our brains are working together, it will be very powerful. Forget this whole one little lone, separate, integrated, regular consciousness brain. And then when our brain disintegrates from that, because it's meant to link up with other brains that are similar, that limited brain calls us deficient. And there's an intelligence that's trying to integrate us. And he talked about strengthening the mind through regulation. And right now I'm regulating my brain with medication. But perhaps eCPR and linking up with other people of this type of consciousness, of this neural tribe, will help with the regulation. And then he said the mind can change the molecules of the body and you bet your butt it can. And that's what that mind that has a mind of its own comes in and does. It changes so much of the neurophysiology and neurochemistry of the body and puts us in this state of oneness. It probably creates dimethyltryptamine. It, who knows what it all creates? Maybe it's trying to create a bunch of superhumans. We often feel like superheroes in that state. So gather your gifts and gather your powers and meet me at the top of the mountain. And he said, where attention goes, neurofiring flows and neurons grow. So most of our attention goes on this me, which is an illusion. So most of our brains and brain cells are devoted to this illusion called me. Now, if we look at beauty, it grows beauty brain cells. We need more nature neurons because when we have those brain cells and they grow, our brains resonate with those nature brain cells. And that resonance from our brain speaks to nature and we can pick up more on nature. And nature knows that we're here and that we're not going to let nature be destroyed and nature is less likely to destroy us in return that might be all we need to do to save the earth from destroying us is just look at nature more and he said create states and states become traits so that goes along with embodying one's mania practicing one's manic traits why would we practice the traits that society tells us to practice? Why wouldn't we practice the traits that the universe has shown us how to practice? And then he said, what you do with your mind changes the molecules of your body 
and changes the functions of your body, like your enzymes, etc. He said, what you do with your mind. I say, what about what the mind does with us? Which is that energy, which is mania that animates us. What does that energy do? What molecules does that change? What, what functionality does that change? It changes our gestures. It changes our actions. And that's changing our DNA. That's changing our physiology. And what he's talking about is on the level of what we as limited ego selves can do to change our mind. There's a greater mind that can change our mind and our brain and our body. We need to worry less about our own integration and worry more about the disintegration of nature. Nature is becoming less differentiated and we are less linked to it. Because he said, the best predictor of health is how well the differentiated parts are linked. Well, we just think of that in terms of human constructs. But what about the larger Gaia sphere? And this really isn't about mental health. It's not about anything. It's as a human being. I was talking to somebody who told me about the term, the clinical gaze, and I'd never heard this term, but to me it resonates with what I've talked about as the light coming out of one's eyes and how that warps a vulnerable person along the trajectory of how they're being judged. And this term clinical gaze is something that goes along with that. And I feel like bipolar is increased action potential, meaning that all the gestures and behaviors of being a human being become available from the highest to the lowest. And one sort of goes through all those in order to really have a recalibration of the brain for proper mirror neurons to know how to respond adequately in a moment when one sees something mirrored of that and it also shows why not to participate in certain things. So we have access from the highest gesture to the lowest. And since we've been released from map consciousness, can we gesture in that energy in ourselves to also concurrently bring it about in reality. Instead of having concurrent disorders, can we have concurrent order? Our gestures and our words and our actions and our, our feelings and our thoughts to gesture in the manic world. And it seems the mind wants more people in touch with the mind so it can use the brain to create itself. There's only one mind, there's no separate minds. And can we act based on what we feel the world needs us to create as people who have gone into map consciousness and set foot in that other world and, and have somewhat of a fuzzy map of it? And it's not a place, it's actually somewhere within ourselves. And we're like flowers as we connect with that and let it grow the whole world flowers as that 
This is just a dialogue in consciousness. I'm just speaking as that which I connected with six years ago. And not writing it off as a meaningless mental illness. And when we think that we have a meaningless mental illness, we accept those thought structures in our brain and those encase our brain cells and make us afraid and fear making meaning again. And seeing meaning and wondering what that was all about. It takes tiny gestures of connection. Just reach out. Reach out as the mind. I'm on this really cool walking path and I'm just scouting it out because at some point I'm going to rollerblade it. I'm waiting for some wrist guards that I ordered in the mail. The thing is it's so quiet here with that when something's loud, it's really loud. And I'm not really in town that much, but when I am, it feels difficult to navigate because I'm not used to navigating it, which could be a hint for when I go back home. are cool when they flicker in the wind. Can't really tell. This path I think is something like 40 miles. Which is a long way to go when one is out of shape. So it might be a way that I can start getting into shape. Because in all the experiments I've talked about recently that I may or may not do, getting into shape would be very beneficial. Because I think if I can transform into the superhuman version of myself, like I am in mania, but without having to be manic, but just by doing things to move towards that, like I've talked about with myself. That would be really cool. And it's interesting that I went into that superhuman mania form when I was 100% raw vegan and my body was very, very healthy. And I don't think that's the only way, but it might play a role, it might be a factor. And I actually feel like eating junky foods like I am right now helps keep me heavy and lower and in this reality. Look at the color of those hedges. Well, I'm gonna see where I am on the map right now because I'm not intending to go all this way, but 
scope it out. That looks like kind of a bump over there, so there are some bumps. It's probably more suitable for biking than rollerblading. Actually, it would be cool to buy a small camper van and then drive to different places and just rollerblade and stand up paddleboard. I've only done that once, but it was quite enjoyable. Because I'd rather have this different and interesting to me lifestyle than work the way society would say to because it's possible that by doing that, which a lot of people do, they'll become mountain climbers or ice climbers or something to show that one can get stronger through these types of challenges. So I might end up doing the same thing on purpose, but not just to show strength through challenges, but just because it's more fun. I think the main thing that seems to be blocking is the financial thing, because one needs money to buy these things in order to live that way. But the cost of the alternative, the cost of going back to living the way that I was, working in mental health, and I still want to work in mental health indirectly by talking with myself and, and maybe starting conversations with others and, and setting up this emotional CPR thing. I guess there's different layers and levels of things. And then also co-creating with my friend, which is still there, but it's just not really happening yet. So a bunch of these things I'll amp up once I know a little bit more information about eCPR. So it's really a matter of just patiently waiting and unfolding. One thing's for sure, I have a lot to say. It would actually be really good to integrate movement into this dialogue because I'm just not moving enough. I guess what I'm trying to figure out in a way is if it can all become integrated. Like one day, this is the coolest house I've ever seen. It's like down low and then there's this big tree and the branch goes along and up and it's dark and there's a stream. Oh. It's 
beautiful. Um, like one day I can imagine integrating some kind of live stream if I'm still on this talking to myself all the time. It seems like if I was free all the time and had all my time to myself then I could just pop on the live stream and talk that way which people are starting to do. And a lot of this depends on technology, like the data that one can have access to when one is out and about, and the speed. So, it's interesting. It's almost like maybe there's a race in a way to see who people will pay attention to remotely. Because right now it's TV or Netflix or Facebook, but one day people will be able to connect all the time, real time, all over the earth instead of, well, I'll go to this workshop because it's local and it's happening next door. And I guess that's the virtual reality thing too, but I don't know. I'm getting ahead of myself with that stuff. And it makes it seem like I have some kind of motive, but if I do have any kind of motive, it's to motivate people like me, not just in the way that we've been told that it's okay to feel motivated, like sharing our story, but actually reconnecting with this new intelligence in our brain, this other faculty of intelligence that we don't reconnect with because we're told that it's just a mental illness. And in my experience as me, all of this talking can't be just mental illness. It actually could be seen as a sign of mental illness, but I'm not sure that it is. And the good thing is that there's so much of it that people who just watch a minute and, and turn it off won't get it. So it's almost like getting rid of the people who wouldn't resonate just by virtue of the fact that one would have to watch more than a minute or two to actually resonate with it. Or after a minute or two, someone would either resonate or not. And it's to resonate with one's own self. So I would be most happy if somebody else who's been through this kind of stuff watched something I have to say for two minutes and then just reactivated one's own voice and just talked to oneself and other people for the rest of one's life and not listen to this stuff. It's about each of our voices together. And that's where the power is if we start saying Maybe this isn't just a meaningless mental illness. Maybe it's something else. And we don't even know exactly what it is. But if we start talking together in this way, then we might actually start to discover something. I'm more interested in that in than just what I have to say to myself. 
I'm more interested in what other people might say to me or themselves from hearing a little bit of what I say to myself, which isn't even a voice of my ego self. It's something else. And it's a voice we all share. And last night I also slept well and I took the half of a Seroquel and one Trazodone and lithium. Still taking the hearty nutritional stuff and so that's going well. And it's just a couple days to eCPR, which I'm really excited to take and see if it resonates. I feel like I need to center in something before going to ECPR, like read up on some information or just get in that mindset because I haven't really been in that mindset for a couple of months. And I was sharing with somebody that there's this pull into beauty, just perceiving beauty and being with beauty forever, but there's this other inner richness of compassion that understands that there's so many people like me out there suffering and I still suffer too but I'm still moving towards beauty but what I'm trying to say is that pull of compassion I wouldn't be able to just stay in beauty all my life by myself I have to also do something with that sense of compassion because we're all one. And if other people are suffering through this kind of thing, it still affects me. And that's why I spend a lot of my time talking to myself about this stuff because something has to be done. And that's why I'm so hopeful about ECPR because maybe it'll be part of the something that has to be done. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.